0: Back to another episode of the Catholic Buzz podcast. We're so happy that you're joining us again as we continue to talk about various topics of the Catholic faith. I hope uh, you are doing well during this uh, time when uh, some of us are stuck at home, depending on where you're watching us from today or listening to us uh, from. And uh, I, my name is Father Danielli, and I'm joined always by the two my two besties. Over here is Josh Sullivan, and over here, he was alive in the 60s, Matt Van Milligan. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You weren't alive (laughs) in the 60s. But if they had to guess which one of us was the oldest one, they would probably guess you, because you have, I was going to say- Maturity? (laughs) I was going to say, because we have more hair. Yeah. That too. (laughs) So, we're traveling back to the 60s today. yeah. Hey, yeah. It's so exciting because we're talking about Vatican II. Yeah. Right? And okay, so all jokes aside, none of us were alive uh, for Vatican II. We're all babies of the 80s. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So, we were babies of the 80s. That's like uh, almost 15 years to 20 years after Vatican II happened that we were born. Yeah. Right. But Vatican II, um, why we're talking about it today. It's because obviously it's important to the life of the church, but also lots of people still reference Vatican II today, on, on all sides. eh? some people who praise Vatican II, some yeah. people who really criticize Vatican II, and then you have the people in the middle who just kind of live the effects of Vatican II in the life of our church.
1: I don't think people realize. I mean, so some people, some people might remember Vatican II, but like, there's a lot of now a, a generation out there. There's two generations out there now that have never experience Vatican II or the changes in Vatican II, and, and, and I've heard, like you said, I've heard a lot about it, but it wasn't until the last week or two when I actually, we knew we were going to be doing Vatican II, so I actually started really diving into it, that I realized what an effect it had, or, or why it had the effect, or how and who was involved in stuff. It was, it was, it's fascinating, and I don't think people realize that if they maybe didn't live through it, or even people that live through it might not realize
0: yeah, I, I think because w- when you mentioned Vatican II, most people, I don't know, like maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but most people would just say that's when the changes in the Mass yeah. happen, yeah. right? But, but right. Vatican II is is so much
1: more. Yeah, that's one document that's, out of yeah, 16. Yeah, one,
0: and, you know, <laughs> and, and the specific changes that sort of came in the liturgy uh, sort of came through the Council and the post-Council uh, documents and understanding, right? Yeah. But but there's so much richness to Vatican To the the documents of Vatican II, the teachings of Vatican II, but most people just reduce it to that's when the mass changed. Yeah. You know?
2: And I mentioned a a few episodes ago that it's like there's a lot of discussion about Vatican II, or like if you have a pulse on kind of trends that are happening in kind of popular Catholic discussion, a lot of people have an opinion on Vatican Vatican II, positive or negative. Exactly. Um, And a lot more people have an opinion than have maybe read the documents themselves. That's right. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of kind of intuitive reaction to Vatican II or just their experience of the changes. Um, so hopefully we'll have a chance to kind of unpack.
0: Yeah, that. and that's actually a good point you made because like I have the two volumes of Vatican II documents The conciliar uh, documents, which happened at the council, and the post-conciliar documents that happened as a result of the council. And they're both the same size? (laughs) they are some thick books. Like, they are some very thick books. And I have two volumes of them. And, uh, of course, I bought them, I believe. Why did I buy them? Uh, I did did buy them before I went into the seminary. I think I took a course uh, on – maybe we had to look at them in religious studies – but I ended, I, rem- I wanted to buy them so I bought both of them uh, but you're right most people have a an opinion on the on Vatican II without actually yeah. reading because that's it's a lot to read
1: there's, there's lots there and I don't even think I think like you said people get through I find it really funny that the changes in the liturgy come in the very first document right and then it's like people get through that first document. and haven't got past that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they got to there and then they're like, okay, I know as much as I need to know about Vatican II and I'm going to speak on it now.
0: We do the same thing today. We're headline readers. Exactly. Eh? We yeah. like to read the first part of an article and mm-hmm. then and then that's it. We think we know the whole story. Uh, okay, so obviously there's two groups of people listening today. Uh, there's people who lived prior to Vatican II yeah. uh, and and lived through the changes throughout the years of Vatican II, uh, uh, the changes that came from Vatican II. And then like Josh said, there's people who are just living through yeah. uh, what's normal to them, the changes yeah. that occurred at Vatican II, uh, and maybe have not read the documents, maybe have read the documents. So let's just start basic. Why? Like, what was Vatican II? Like, obviously, we know if there's Vatican II, there was a Vatican I, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, I guess the easiest way to explain it would be it was that the Pope convened this Group of the world's bishops to come together, yeah. right, uh, at the Vatican, <laughs> hence the name Vatican II, uh, and and they were to talk about these things, right. And it wasn't just bishops at Vatican II; it was a sort of um,
2: theological experts yeah, and right.
0: different experts in various fields, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, would that be the the easiest way to explain? Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and it's and, and labeled as an ecumenical council, so that means that the, the whole body of bishops is brought together to discuss a matter of importance um, for the church and it is important too that it was called by a reigning pope and presided over by that pope but it it brought in the perspectives of a number of other people as well it brought in uh, yeah theologians um, but also representatives from other religions other uh, protestant denominations to really kind of um uh discuss how the church would move forward and in, in a lot of and again the the historical context for the council itself um, you have kind of post-world War two like a lot of a lot of changes in the world a lot of changes in how you know Western civilization understands itself and, and I guess beyond Western civilization that you know the, the the church needs to engage with the world so getting a bunch of experts getting them all together to discuss that I don't know
0: yeah, I'm glad you said that because you can't just say that Vatican II just kind of came up out of mm-hmm. nowhere. You have to put yourself in context of what was happening in the world at the time. So yeah, it was the post-war, uh, post-depression, uh, uh, sort of all these, this, the revolution, that was, was this sort of revolution in the world happening? Was a sexual revolution happening at this time? Yeah. Or maybe another, something yeah, a, bit, yeah, a little bit after? It? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, maybe so and, yeah, the, and somewhere. the church was like, we need to reach out uh, to the world, which is what the church has done for 2,000 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, reaching in the world so that that was sort of thing. Uh, just to put us in history so it was Pope John the 23rd in 1959 he called the council as in he announced that we're gonna start preparing for a council called Vatican II yeah. uh, and it was going to begin in 1962 so three years later so people had three years to sort of prepare uh, documents and expertise and uh, you know, travel coupons to get to Rome—all
1: <laughs> and these things. You know, well, and that's I, that's yeah. what I was gonna say. So, a council. What is a council? Like a council is. Why do we? Why does a church have councils? I'm asking. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna. Say, I can go into it, thought, but I'm, I'm asking you guys. <laughs> you looked like you were gonna just keep yeah. talking. No, no, yeah, yeah. Go, go for it. So what? Well, the, <laughs> well uh, from the
2: the beginning of the uh, the church's history, even even in the Bible, you have. The, the Council of Jerusalem, where the, the apostles get together and discuss, you know, um, uh, what what do we need to have in common, like, to actually um, communicate the faith to people from all, and the, the spirit of the, the council is, is actually very similar to to what was going on in Vatican II, uh, that you have, it, that uh, you're encountering different cultures with the gospel. You have Greeks, you have Jews, you have uh, other Gentile groups, that all these people have different uh, conceptions, understandings, cultural uh, practices—how h- um, we need to be on the same page when, yeah. when we're engaging them. So, in uh, like <laughs> for them, it's like it was a matter of like dietary restrictions and circumcision and and those types of breaking questions. away from
1: the Jewish faith a little bit. But well,
2: uh, yeah, y- yes, or clarifying, yes, yes and no, um, yeah. um, but also like you you have that continuity through history where. The church needs to decide something. It needs to be on the same page, um, so that it's clear in the in the message that it's giving to the world. So there have been various councils throughout history.
1: It's Twenty-one, I think, altogether, yeah. right? And so they call a council when there's something that needs to be clarified. And a lot of times, up until this point, it's been dogmatic, right? So a lot of times they 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 call they're clarifying um, that Jesus was both God and man, yeah. um, and so then they had a whole council. De- Dependent upon that, and and they get the experts in, and then they they have this council to decide what does the church believe. Does it believe he's the son of God? Does he believe he is God? Is he God and man, or is he one or the other? What is he? Um, and so, having all those, having having the experts, having all that, and then and then they make kind of some definitive statements, mm-hmm. uh, some dogmatic statements, I guess. By the end, and that's we were talking about earlier, but that's like one of the highest forms of doctrine and dogmatic statements that come out of it right like, like, like when it comes to an ecumenical council when it comes to a council of the church that's that's like written yeah. in stone
2: yeah the, the, the statement that's issued yeah. uh, in like uh, as a result of, of that council carries some pretty heavy kind of authoritative weight in yeah. the church
1: yeah. pretty much the
0: heaviest yeah yeah so uh pope john the 23rd he called the council it began in 1962 i believe it was october 1962 and uh, some two thousand eight hundred of the world's bishops gathered together at the Vatican. Now, imagine that
1: well, it was actually claimed to be one of the biggest meetings of all time. Because if you think of like church services and stuff, you can have two thousand people in a yes. church service, but there's is, there's is the celebrants and then the people participating, but not. But this was a meeting where they actually listened to people, where they actually heard um, who was doing what and that kind of thing, right? Like, like so, they, they had everybody had a chance to speak. Uh, for five minutes, every bishop had a chance to speak for five minutes at the council, and um, yeah, it was kind of just—it it, it was one of the biggest meetings of the world at that time. Yeah, and
0: there was—it was, was split into four different sessions. One happened in 1962, 63, 64, and the final one in 1965. And um, you know, interestingly, the, the Pope who called it, John, Pope John the yeah. Twenty-Third, died shortly after the uh, first session was completed right and then the the conclave happened and the, they elected pope paul vi as the new pope of the catholic church and then he reconvened the council he said okay we're going to finish off with these with the next three
1: sessions and a lot of people thought he didn't he, he wasn't going to they actually thought that he wouldn't reconvene like okay this is a great thing that he started this council thing okay we got a new pope like in the middle of this council they had to uh, elect a new Pope yeah. and so then they, they did elect a new Pope and they a lot of people thought he was just going to shut it down and okay so this this was a council but it wasn't really a council like well let's just ignore it now and we'll move on but no he reconvened he did, and yeah. had three more sessions after that
0: yeah which is pretty impressive so um, at, at the end he concluded he called an end to the Vatican to Vatican II council in 1965 and then really sort of the work came from there, right? Mm-hmm. So what they discussed in the, in Vatican, at Vatican II started becoming uh, words on paper, you know. And I think that was a process, too, that happened at the actual meetings, too. People would bring documents and they'd review yeah. them and all this different stuff, too. Uh, but um, so what kind of things came from Vatican II? Uh, 16 yeah. different, uh, what do you call them, documents, documents, documents uh, yeah. uh, you know?
1: We said, I think there was four main documents, oh, that, and then, and then there was 12 lesser documents, which was still important. Mm-hmm. But again, this wasn't doctrinal or dogmatic documents. This was more pastoral in the way that the church... We have to remember, back in the 1960s, if we think about pre-Vatican II, a lot of times it was the priest... What we think about is the priest facing um, the altar, facing the tabernacle, facing the altar, facing away with his back to the people... And um, there was a lot of suggestions from people that pre-Vatican II, it was people, everybody, the community attended Mass, but the priest celebrated Mass kind of by himself, and people didn't understand the Latin. They didn't understand quite what's going on, so they recite the rosary. They would read their prayer books. They would do that while Mass was going on. So really, the Mass was, as much as it was for the people because they got to receive the Eucharist and stuff, it was really like they would, that was their time to come and pray, as a community, but they weren't praying together as a community. They were praying their own individual prayers. And so I think Vatican II was really a chance to kind of let's bring it into community worship, community prayer, and let's all be praying the same thing together. So a lot of the changes that we have that come from there, specifically in the liturgy and stuff, focused around how do we change, um, how do we make this a communal prayer versus uh, the priest is praying at the front, and because this amazing miracle is happening with the transubstantiation and the, the Eucharist, we're just going to sit here and be a part of it. Like, just watch it happen. But we don't understand what's going on necessarily. I mean, um, unless you really knew your Latin well or, you know what I mean? And then you just memorize these weird vocabulary responses that you just kind of spread out at whenever it was asked, you know? Yeah, and there's huge, uh, uh, people have huge opinions on
0: on either side of that. Yeah, exactly. That, right? yeah, Which yeah. we'll get into uh, <laughs> later. <little> later. Yeah, <laughs> but, but that's true because one of the main focus uh, for, John the twenty-third, when he started the Vatican II, was to look at the liturgy, yeah. uh, to look at how we can be ecumenical, uh, to look at our relationship with the Jews, uh, mm-hmm. other religions, yeah. you know, uh, how, we, how, we, how we just live our, our Catholic faith in the world. That was so, that was changing.
1: Say, how does the Catholic Church interact with the world? Yeah. And a lo- some people use the words bringing the Catholic Church into the modern world, but I think it was more because there was no dogmatic Changes or not really um, on a major scale, but it was how do we change um, the relationship, or how do we change how the church communicates, not how the church is, or the, like no tra- no major changes in the beliefs of the church changed, but how the church communicates with the modern world was different, right? And that was the kind of one of the big changes. Yeah. So let's just break down the the four
0: major documents, like the constitutional documents that yeah. came from Vatican II, and then we'll we'll look at some reaction after. So the first one that come was, like Josh said, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. This was called Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, and uh, this had to deal. It was it was the focus was really on the Paschal Mystery, the life, death, the, the passion, and the resurrection of Jesus, but how it centers around the Christian life. You know how how we pray together, how we live it in our lives. Um. Well, I know you. Do you have any comments on that document?
2: Yeah. Oh well, no, no. And and just just to to kind of recap what what Josh was saying that like the a lot of the focus or what would people what people want to talk about that document now is that it really uh, aimed at promoting the I, I think the, the wording is the conscious and active participation yes. of the laity yes. within the, the the mass and and you have yeah. that. Uh, Maybe extreme, like I, I wasn't around. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you have that kind of extreme example of like um, people feeling very detached from what's happening in mass. They're not. They're not engaged, and in, in some cases, they actually don't know what part of the mass they're in or, or what's going on
1: until the bells ring.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, the, the quote is from the document: is uh, that the lay uh, lay people during the liturgy are to take part fully aware of what they are doing, actively engaged in the right and enriched by its effects. Yeah, Yeah, so it was really to move it from a spectator sport to uh, something that you participate in, really, yeah. And and, uh, I think they, what's funny is it did not say in that document, though, some, some of the some of the practices of the liturgy mm-hmm. that may have happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s that that sort of the fallout of yeah. Vatican II, weren't prescribed by the documents of Vatican II but maybe people took liberties with them afterwards, right like even actually the uh, is this correct to say that the the when the church allowed that the mass to be celebrated in the vernacular wasn't in that.
2: Yeah, yeah, oh, and, a and even, even in Sacrosanctum Concilium itself, I think it, it, uh, it definitely uh, um, prefers chant as, as the type of music. Yeah. It, it puts that forward. Um, it may say that Latin is preferable um, where you have people able to engage, able to actively um, and consciously participate in the Mass. Um, it's where um, th- those things start to alienate people from the participation. That they can be a problem, and it's I, and from from what I've read, um, it's more in the post-conciliar documents that um, it's saying that in, in these cases the vernacular, so that the common language, is, is probably best uh, for those communities, and then in a lot of cases it's up to the the bishop to decide for their diocese what um, you
1: know what, what how to celebrate, to what to say, se- yeah. And I think I, I mean we'll get into the, the people's opinions about it, but it is it is um, something. That a lot of times when people have opinions about Vatican II, they have them. Um, I can't remember what they. You guys might remember what the name for it is, but basically, it happened after. Therefore, it must be because. Post hoc ergo propter. Thank you. <laughs> I knew there was something. Uh, but yeah, it's but a that's logical fallacy. Yeah, yeah, but that's but that's like but but when we realize like like you had said. the 60s there's a lot of things going on the war that like all that stuff that just kind of then we had the cold war then we had uh vietnam all that stuff in the western world um all that kind of like we always attribute it in the catholic church not we but people attribute it to vatican ii all these changes that happened was because of vatican ii but if you look at everything that kind of was going on in the world there was a lot changing at that time not just the documents of vatican ii if you go back to those documents a lot of those changes that happened in the church weren't in the documents themselves necessarily. It could be suggested, it could be understood, and that's something we we discussed too was the difference between Vatican II and a lot of the other ones, a lot of the other councils, was that um, Vatican II was written in essay format, whereas in the other um, councils, were written in one-line statement, like dogmatic or doctrinal statements. So they just kind of said, so God is fully man and fully God. And that's, boom, that's like one of the, it's just a one-liner, there's no misinterpretation of it, that's what it is. Whereas in with the Vatican II documents, there was, it was essay format. So there was long, and, and the more that you talk about it, the more that you write about it, there could be more, oh, I'll take this word and interpret it this way, and if I interpret this word, then I can, I can have this idea Versus somebody who reads it has a totally different opinion about what that means, and and that's where we get into some of the different ideas or different separations, right?
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, you have to just say it how it is. Like uh, there was there were people uh, at the time of Vatican II who expected large changes yes, to the uh, teachings of of the church in general. And so when, you know, the saying, I guess, when you give an inch, you take a mile or whatever it is. So I think right after Vatican II, there was a mix of both excitement. Uh, You know, there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit breathed his, you know, a fresh breath of air into the church. Uh, But And so there was excitement there. But out of that excitement, there was also some people who took that excitement and rolled with it in a way that wasn't. Uh, what the that, what the council fathers um intended, intended right and you see that you know lots of people say oh uh, i was i was i was in the grocery store uh last month and someone said to me uh, you know uh, when i came back to church they had changed all the words yeah uh, you know <laughs> like now i don't know the words and i and i, I laughed at them i said those words changed almost 10 years ago, yeah. <laughs> you know, in yeah. 2011, yeah. when we had the New Roman Missal and we changed things like, and also with you to end with your spirit, you know. So it was funny that that person had said because obviously they hadn't been to church in 10 years. But, uh, you know, when the New Roman Missal came out 10 years ago, we were playing catch-up from Vatican II. Exactly. Like, yeah. Because when the English translation... Of the mass came out it came out sort of quickly you know people were excited yeah. to celebrate mass in english and, and and so the translation wasn't a direct translation of the latin so we, kind of were, we were pl- it was a rushed thing yeah so that's just one small example of other yeah. things that happened from vatican II too that people sort of were just like so excited and, and trying to get uh get rolling out like rolling out the thing yeah, yeah. that some things weren't done
1: correctly that's right right or, or were interpreted or things that that might have been, like you said, maybe things weren't released. And so, because like, so what mass parts do we do? How do we, how do we sing this now in English? Yeah. And then it became, okay, well you, you like, as long as the words are there, you sing it however you want. And so then they started, but then they took that, sing it however you want. Okay. So we got to do the mass parts this way, but we can sing all the, ent- ont- the entrance hymns and the, and the closing hymns. And we're going to add a closing hymn actually, because that wasn't a part of the thing, but like, we're going to change. Okay. Now we don't have to sing the entrance antiphon or the communion antiphon. Or chant it, or however, we're going to just sing a nice song at that time. All those little changes kind of came in. It eventually became tradition, and s- to the point where, like, as the changes came out and as the liturg- liturgical documents came out, I think it was 2016 liturgical document that talks about the mass music, and it says, okay, you're allowed to do this, but like, it puts it in place. And I think we've talked about it before, but it's like the fifth option is sing a nice song that has to do with the readings. Right. You know, what I mean, that's like number five on the list, and that's kind of what we do today as a regular thing.
0: So. We should have left the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy for last. Yeah, right? yeah I know. That's all we're going to talk about. <laughs> we, could, yeah, we could talk about it forever. Hey, what but are the let's, other ones? Because we will come back to the reactions that people had uh, and it and, focuses around and and, and, yeah. and sort of the opinions people have on, on the changes there. So the next constitution, remember there's four major constitutions that came from Vatican II, was uh, was uh, the dogmatic constitution on the church called Lumen Gentium. Uh, so Lumen Gentium was uh, a document that sort of uh, translates to light of the nations. It's talking about Jesus as the light of the nations. So it was uh, ecumenical in nature, reaching out to people of all faiths, right? Yeah. Uh, what else would you say about Lumen Gentium?
2: Um, we referenced, referenced it at an early, when we were talking about kind of a relationship between kind of Protestant denominations and Catholicism, that like, that, I think, I think Lumen Gentium, Gentium is the document that refers to um, Protestants as our separated brethren, that like mm-hmm. baptized Christians um, should work towards um, communion, should work towards kind of a, a common understanding of our faith, that like we, um, uh, yeah, uh, unity is a high goal if we take Jesus seriously, um, and and I think uh, Lumen Gentium r- r- really tries to kind of emphasize that and um, really bring other uh, non-Catholic um, faiths and non-Catholic Christians into dialogue about you know how can we how can we move forward? Yeah, yeah because
0: they focus a lot on the universal call to holiness, yeah. right? And uh, I think in this document lumengentium, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along the lines uh, and I, I think the wording is uh, uh, that although the church recognizes the defects of mm-hmm. some of the Protestant religions, I think that's the word that they they use, they also recognize grace that mm-hmm. can come from the practice and and I mean we can see that there are there are people who are living good Christian lives yeah. who, uh, who are not part of the Catholic faith, right yeah. You can't deny that, they're following Jesus in their life, and but the church still continues to hope and pray for unity, for communion, right? And so yeah, the document was that as our universal call to holiness, that we can help each other to be holy, right, right. And, and learn from each other's experience.
1: I think he talks about there, too, is the Muslim and the Jewish faith and how they recognize that the God of Abraham is the God of Islam and the God of the Jewish faith and the God of Christians, So not that we serve the same God, but that we all, like we say, serve God the Father in a sense, um, is that the deity that we worship as Christians is recognized as a deity or as the deity, the one deity, from the other two major faiths that are out there. Again, not saying that they worship this, like Islam and Allah is not, Allah is not necessarily the God that we recognize, who is Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God the Father. Um... But there is, they recognize him uh, or or God as, they, they see a piece of him, not the whole thing necessarily or whatever. But so there is also unity in the major religions outside of Christianity itself. Obviously, they're missing the big... Picture of salvation, mm-hmm. right? Which is Jesus. But. Yeah, and another thing that came from
0: that too. You're right, is that people started teaching that all uh, all religions believe in the same God. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not that's not the just case. Not the case, you know. And that's, that's but that's an,
1: again a misinterpretation of what maybe the the document said.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that's Lumen Gentium. Uh, is that
2: good for that one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, just. Uh, just Quickly, um, no.
1: There, uh,
2: also, uh, a number of my friends are, are Byzantine Catholic, and I've I've referenced like kind of differences between kind of Eastern yeah. and Western Catholicism. That there's even and there's there's a separate supporting document that's orient. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it, it more specifically deals with kind of the the uh, the separated but seeking union other Catholic um, yes. uh, faith or like that that they're in communion but they're still. Ground to cover in terms of like kind of full reconciliation. Yeah. Um, that, 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 yeah, there, there is like a, um, on the part of a church a real desire for to, to bring everyone into the same fold of communion.
0: Yeah. That's Orientalium Ecclesiarum. That's the one. That's <laughs> the document. How was my pronunciation? <laughs> Fantastic. Not bad. Hey, yeah. eh? not bad. Um, okay, um, we have just a few minutes left uh, of this episode. Uh, we should have, I, I don't think I told people that we're, uh, Vatican II, we're doing two parts uh, on Vatican II because there's just so much to say. But we can probably squeeze
1: in one more. I was going to say the oh, last yeah. two. Can we hit the last we two? We can major hit ones? the last two, sure,
0: yeah. Let's go. So the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, this is called De Verba. And interestingly enough, um, Pope Benedict XVI, who was only 35 years old, present Mm -hmm. at Vatican II as a theologian. Yeah. Okay. And he said that this was, this was um, one of the most valuable documents of Vatican II because uh, De Verbum, obviously the word of God, and and it's talking about how we need to really uh, be people who follow the word of God more in our life and read the scriptures, right? Catholics are known for not reading the scriptures and going back to the liturgy, uh, it expanded how much of the scriptures we actually read uh or proclaim uh, at the liturgy, but this was something about um yeah uh, how the Bible is important
2: to the life of a Catholic yeah yeah, and uh this uh, I think this for me at least ties ties to the um Lumen Gentium as well that it's like that that's a great bridge to yes. uh, the human, par- yeah yeah, um, yeah uh yeah exactly. Protestant Christians are like um a big thing for me was recognizing how um, especially Pope Benedict the 16th was more, you know, biblically versed. And in his yes. writing what like every other line is a reference from scripture that it's how deeply uh, scripturally aware the Catholic tradition is yeah. um, that, you know, that there's, there's ground to cover between, you know, laity being biblically literate because the, the, the opportunity that that, um, kind of allows between you know Catholic and Protestant Christians um, there's real value there and um, there's also a feature of uh, David Arabum, or is talking about like as as Jesus as you know the word become flesh that is yes. that it's yeah, that it's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. To mention. Um, and then uh, yeah there's another point that I that I lost mm. I lost my train sorry
0: <laughs> probably cuz i was making faces yeah. at you or something yeah um but but i think that's and and i okay, as much as like we listen to this now and be like well yeah we read the scriptures now and like yeah. whatever oh but remember this this was a change yeah. from what people were doing prior to
2: 1962 to 1965 yeah. Yeah. yeah i remember is this the one where they they add that um uh, a
1: homily is expected of uh of the priest, so that they can understand the scriptures. That that that, ah. that the scriptures
2: to be kind of explained and you know. It's
1: in Vatican II somewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah, But
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I
0: think it might be yeah, to, for it, yeah for it to be. I think it was in De Verbum uh, that the that the scriptures
2: should be yeah. explained, not just read, but not yeah. There, there's there's yes. a, a, an importance placed on you know uh, education and.
1: So was there no homily before in Vatican II? It wasn't maybe, required, I don't think. There was, or, a, there was a spot for it. It was they they only
2: required to. on solemnities or yes. something. Yeah, or specific masses. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay, and the fourth constitutional document uh, is the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. It's called Gaudium et and one of the more popular that people refer to. Right, uh, called Joy and Hope. And this talks about really uh, how we're a pilgrim people. We're supposed to be living in the world, but not of the world. Yes, right. Yes. And it's reminding people, that's what I love about Gaudium and Spes, uh, that it's reminding people of our duty as baptized people Just to be for, priest, to be. prophet, and king yeah. in the world. Yeah. Like, that happens to us at our baptism. That's, that's uh, a mission that we all have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and,
2: and you talked about, uh, uh, like, ch- changes in, in, in the Roman, like, recent changes in the Roman Missal being, uh, kind of catching up with uh, some of the Vatican II documents um, you look at uh, Pope John Paul II and like his, his emphasis on oh, and, and uh, Benedict XVI as well, emphasis on the new evangelization. Yes. is really an, an emphasis of of
1: this document, of,
2: of this document that it's, yeah. um, that the church is missional, that like, yes. the, the core identity of the church is
1: Go um, out and as get a mission them. to the <laughs> world. Yeah. Go out and evangelize, go out and tell people about Jesus and how all awesome. He is.
2: And, and I
0: think that's a good place to end because uh, we're still unpacking.
1: Over fifty
0: years later, you yeah. know, um, coming up to 50, 50, 60, almost, almost 60, sixty years yeah. later, uh, we're and we're still catching up, right? Yeah. We're still living sort of what Vatican II has sort of.
1: And this is the crucial time, I think, for us. As that's why it's a great time to to unpack it for us as Vatican II. But I think for as a people, as a church, is for the regular people to just read into Vatican II, read the documents of Vatican II for yourself. You got a whole week now until we come back. Um, but read into it so that you have an understanding. If you've never read them before, it's going to open your eyes up, and it's also going to open up your eyes to what the church actually teaches in these, in these scenarios, but what our goal and our mission is as a church.
0: Yeah, and, and just quickly, so we talked about the four major constitutions, yeah. but the other documents that came from Vatican II deal with social communication. Yeah. which is really interesting Mm -hmm. today because that's where it exploded in our world. It could be impacted differently, yeah. Don't get Matt started on (laughs) the use of (laughs) social social communication. (laughs) Um, Okay, ecumenism uh, of the Eastern Catholic churches that we mentioned that document uh, prior. Mission activity, ad gentis, uh, that's something that we refer to a lot. Uh, The apostolate of the laity. The mission of the laity, yeah. yeah. Uh, The pastoral office of bishops, religious freedom, Non-Christian religions, uh, the adaptation and renewal of religious life. So that was talking specifically to uh, sisters and brothers in religious communities, and on the on the ministry and the life of priests. So that that's they touched on so many things at Vatican II. So we just talked about the four major uh, uh, constitutions that's uh, Vatican II. Dot, but there's so much there. Yeah, there's so much to be to there. be read there. But we are at a time on this. We're, we're doing a two-part. Uh, yeah on Vatican II. So now that we've got the framework on what was talked about at Vatican II, when it happened, who was there, all that stuff, now we're going to, next episode, we're going to get into the exciting things, the fallout, (laughs) what's happened since Vatican II, the good... The, the bad, bad and, and the ugly, the ugly. <laughs> and I didn't point to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I say totally ugly. did. <laughs>
0: I did point to you when I said ugly. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry, Matt. When you look at Josh and I, you're not the ugly one on the panel, right? That's all the time we have on this episode of the Catholic Buzz. But if you have any questions for us, Josh made a good point. Uh, take this week to read up on the documents of Vatican II, or at least learn a little bit more about Vatican II and what happened there. And then we're going to talk about the fallout on next week's episode. So, send us an email if you want uh, to comment or ask questions at the Catholic Buzz Podcast at gmail.com uh, for Josh Sullivan and Matt Van Milligan. My name is Father Tignelli, and we'll see you next week for part two
1: on Vatican II on the Catholic Buzz.